Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 4, as we go through our Lucan sermon series, a sermon entitled, Boulders to Bread. Luke chapter 4. I hope you'll see the temptation of our Christ in some new light this morning. A young couple was struggling with their personal finances in an effort to rein in their spending. They agreed that whenever they were tempted to make an impulsive purchase, they would say, get behind me, Satan. When the tempter came right there at the point of purchase, get behind me, Satan. Well, one evening, the wife came home with a very elegant dress and showed it to her husband and said, now, now what do you think about this, honey? He noted its beauty, to be sure. It was a nice fit and all, but he wondered why the wife had not adhered to their little agreement. He remarked, I thought we agreed. Whenever we were tempted to make an impulsive purchase, we would say, get thee behind me, Satan. Did you forget to do that, honey? She said, oh, no. No, I said it. I said, get behind me, Satan. Well, what happened then? He said it looked good from back here, too. (laughs) Everything is at stake here. Will Jesus, the one that God has sent to proclaim the good news to the poor, will he stop serving God and serve Satan? He could, you know. This is no prescripted chancel drama. The fate of all humanity hangs on the choice of this one hungry, tempted man. We watch transfixed, wanting to shout, don't do it, don't do it, yet knowing if it were we, that we would make the boulders into bread, that we would cut a deal with the devil at the hour of temptation. I want you to pretend this morning that you've never read this story before about the trial, the temptation of Jesus. We've already gone through chapters one through three. We know that first of all, Jesus is the son of God. And secondly, that he's born of a virgin. And thirdly, we've learned that he was born in a barn, that he had to borrow the cattle's feeding trough to have a cradle. The paradox of Jesus being both God and man. Well, it comes forth fully in Luke's tell of this hour of temptation. How could Jesus fail? He's God's salvation. He's the beloved one at baptism last week who pleases the Father. On the other hand, how could he possibly be strong? He's a starving man in need of the nourishment of bread. A flesh and blood man seeking to avoid the cruelty of the cross. We dare not rush by the saga of temptation, this drama We cannot make light of the moment before us. Everything is on the line. Our Lord is tempted to use his powers for his own personal purposes. He is tempted, moreover, to trade in God's plan of salvation, which goes down the rough road of suffering for Satan's pseudo-glory, which promises, I have a way to avoid 
the cross. As we turn to the temptation account, sit on the edge of your seat and ponder and pray that Jesus will make it through this horrible event unscathed. And never forget that the Savior does sin. There is no salvation. There are a lot of different lenses you can read this story through, different ways to interpret this temptation of our Christ. I'm gonna give you several different ones and they're all right, not one of them is wrong, but different ways to read this particular passage. First of all, you can read it as Jesus being the true Israel who is faithful to the Father in the wilderness when ancient Israel failed. He is the one, unlike Israel, the new Israel he is, faithful in the wilderness. Or secondly, Jesus is the new Adam, the second Adam who faces temptation like the first Adam and Eve and yet he passes where Adam and Eve failed. He's the new Israel, he's the new Adam. Or Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who accomplished the victory of our redemption by not going around death, but by going through death to the victory of God. The true Israel, the second Adam, the suffering servant, they're all glasses by which to view the passage today. Well, let's begin in chapter four, verse one. And full of the Holy Spirit, returning from the Jordan, that's where he's baptized, Jesus was led out by the Spirit in the wilderness. The opening verse reminds us of the unique role of the Holy Spirit in relation to Jesus. We've already learned in chapter one that he was conceived through the creative power of the Holy Spirit. And we learned in chapter three that as the Spirit descended in the form of a dove, that he's the Son of God with whom God is pleased. And so we're not surprised here in chapter four to learn, first of all, he is full of the Holy Spirit. And second of all, he is led about by the Spirit. In verse 14, you'll see he's empowered by the Spirit. In verse 18, he is anointed by the Spirit. So Satan comes and tries to sidetrack the Savior. Luke lets his readers know that the ministry of this Messiah is bathed in the power of God's Spirit. Well, look at the first part of chapter two. For 40 days being tempted by the devil. No doubt about it, this is the language of wilderness wanderings of ancient Israel. We read in Deuteronomy eight, and you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness for 40 years. Or in Deuteronomy eight again. He led you through the terrible wilderness and his fiery serpents and scorpions. Jesus is not an idyllic event. This is no retreat, but rather this is a time in the wilderness, a waterous place with snakes and scorpions. What are the similarities between the wilderness wanderings of ancient Israel and the wilderness time of Jesus here so we can see Jesus as the new Israel who succeeds in the wilderness? First of all, they were divinely led in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8, ancient Israel was led in the wilderness. And here in Luke 4, 1, the spirit leads of God leads him into the wilderness. 
Secondly, they both endure a period of 40. For ancient Israel, it's 40 years. And for our Christ, it's 40 days. And interestingly enough, they're both referred to as the Son of God. Exodus 4 calls ancient Israel the Son of God. And here, Luke calls Jesus the Son of God. Both sons of God are led in the wilderness. They're both there for a period of 40 days. And yet, lastly, their testing comes along similar storylines. Israel had to hunger in the wilderness to learn that one does not live by bread alone. That passage comes from Deuteronomy 8. And ancient Israel was instructed to worship the one true God and not follow the other gods, though she failed. And Israel was told in Deuteronomy 6, do not put the Lord your God to the test. It's the same storyline of ancient Israel being tested in the wilderness, but ancient Israel failed. And Jesus, the true Israel, the faithful Israel, will pass. Luke wants us to realize that while Israel failed utterly to be the obedient son of God, that Jesus, the true son of God, relives Israel's history of redemption in the wilderness and yet proves to be completely and absolutely obedient. Most appropriately, appropriately Jesus' response to Satan's temptation, he quotes text directly from the wilderness time of testing in Israel. Now notice he identifies, and there it's the devil, the diabolos, where we get the word diabolical. I know today there's a thought that the devil is just an idea and not real. Scripture presents Satan as real, a real person with real power. He's a diabol diabolical one. In fact, the Gospel of John puts it best in John chapter 10 and verse 10. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. And he's here during these 40 days with our Christ to kill, steal, and destroy the plan of God for salvation. And he comes to your home and my home with the temptation to kill, steal, and destroy. Well, the, the idea here is to Turning the boulders into bread, look at 2B through 3. 2B through 3. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the diabolos said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Interestingly enough, we don't have the usual word for fasting here, but rather we're told that he ate nothing. It reminds us of Moses in Deuteronomy and Exodus when he eats nothing before he's about to receive the law and commune with God in a special way. In a similar fashion, Jesus abstains from physical food to fully nourish himself spiritually for the mission, including the crucifixion and his journey to Jerusalem and this gospel. The real temptation encapsulated with this idea of turning the stones, the boulders, to bread, an enticement for Jesus to selfishly attend to his own needs and cease to see himself as the Son of God, the Savior of all humanity. Think about yourself. What good will you do, God, if you're dead? Turn these boulders into bread. Any reasonable person would do so. You can only take two, so much. It's been 40 days, Satan must have said, 
course, later in Luke's gospel in chapter 9, he feeds 5,000. He could have easily turned the stones into bread. Look at verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. It's from Deuteronomy 8.3. Put plainly, God's path takes precedent over the desires, even the strongest desires of flesh and food. Jesus has not just missed a few meals. He's a starving man. He's on the brink of death. Dr. Michael Peel in the British Medical Journal cites hunger strikers. He found some that survived 28 days and then died, some 36 days, 138 days. Even found someone who actually made it 48 days without food who survived. It can be done, but you're on the brink of death at 40 days, and most are already dead. He assesses the glory of God in 5 through 8. Look at that. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it's been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. And Jesus said to him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. What makes a temptation to power so irresistible? Henry Nouwen sees it this way. Maybe gaining power is a sorry substitute for the hard task of love. Maybe gaining power is a sorry substitute for the hard task of love. It's easier to be God than to love God. It's easier to control you than to love you. It's easier to own life than to love the essence of life. Jesus asked the question to his disciples, do you love me? And they ask, can we be seated at your right and your left hand when you come into your kingdom? God's question is always a question of love. Do you love me? And we always ask, well, what's in it for me? What power will I have when I'm in your kingdom? Do you love me? Well, where will I be seated? On that day when your kingdom is established and you're on the center throne. Notice that Luke orders the temptations this way, the bread, the worldly kingdom, and then the temple leap, and Matthew orders it the other way. It doesn't matter. He changes the last two to temple leap, and then the worldly kingdoms. This passage sort of reminds us of Moses standing there at Mount the top of Pisgah, and the Lord shows him all the promised land and all the kingdoms. The devil's deal includes Jesus, giving Jesus nothing less than all the kingdoms of the world, not love, but power. Forget the love of the cross. I want you to go the way of power, Satan says. You just need to trade in your allegiance to your father to allegiance to me. I can do it another way, a way other than the cross. I'll give you all the kingdoms if that's what you want. 
If you want to have all reign and rule and authority under you, I can provide that to you. You see, the real temptation in number two is to avoid God's planned journey for Jesus. To avoid the cross, to avoid suffering, to avoid the horrors that are ahead in Luke's gospel. We know that Jesus is going to rule. Gabriel said of him early in chapter 1 that there would be no end to the rule of this Davidic son. And Psalm 2a says of the Lord's Messiah, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possessions. The devil is offering a, sh a shabby substitute for the real reign and rule as a son of God by God on the throne of God, seated there at the right hand of God. I'll go another way without the cross, without the suffering. Look at all these kingdoms. And there the Christ stands and he looks at all the nations at one time of the world and Satan says, they can be yours. Just bow to me. Forget the Father. His way's too hard. I've got another way for you to be the ruler of all humanity. His response comes from Deuteronomy 6, again, that wilderness wandering time. The Israel is to worship God alone. But unlike Israel, Jesus, the true son, unlike Israel, God's disobedient son, Jesus, the true son, is obedient and refuses to worship any other gods when Israel chased after the gods of the pagans. Look at verses 9 through 12, testing God's promises. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone." Jesus answered and said to them, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Finally, the last temptation comes at the pinnacle, literally in the Greek text, the wingtip of the temple. Most likely a reference to a pinnacle tower at the top of the royal colonnade that overlooked the deep ravine on the south side. Jewish historian Josephus says it's so tall up there looking down that it is dizzying to those who stand there. And Satan comes to Jesus now and he says, you want to quote scripture? I know a little bit of scripture. And he both alludes to and directly quotes Psalm 91 that says that the Messiah will be saved. He gives him the quotes, look there in verse 10, for he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike even your foot against the stone. The oddity of the story is this, when Jesus finally does take the leap of death, when he enters Jerusalem already knowing that the religious authorities are seeking to kill him in this gospel, when he enters Jerusalem knowing that they are hunting for his head, the religious authorities, the establishment are ready to find the moment to 
do the deal with Judas and kill him. He knows it all. And yet he leaps into Jerusalem. And this time when he leaps, unlike Psalm 91, he is not saved from death. He is rather saved through death. God saves the Messiah not from death, but through death, through the glorious resurrection. In fact, if you follow the devil's logic here, there'd never be any martyrs. But God preserves through death rather than from death. And then verse 13, you notice waiting for the opportune time. When the devil had failed the temptation, he departed until the opportune time. Luke is setting his reader up for that moment when in the person of Judas, the devil will return when Judas is looking for the opportunity to betray the rabbi. The next time he's mentioned in this gospel, the devil comes in a temptation to Judas to sell his soul with the 30 pieces of silver to sell over the Christ. Jesus' victory over temptation is unlike the temptation that began Scripture with that of Adam's failure. But Luke is presenting to us a new Adam who fulfills where the first Adam fails. Do you ever notice, look up there at chapter 3 and verse 38. Did you ever notice that of all the genealogies in the New Testament and the Gospels, that Luke is the genealogy that traces Jesus all the way back to whom? To Adam. The others don't do that. Why is he doing that? He's setting you up for the next chapter where we have the second Adam, the new Adam, that overcomes the temptation. Here's the comparison. Jesus obeys God and Adam yields to the tempter. Adam has given dominion over the world, but he seeks more power to be like God. Jesus, on the other hand, seeks no kingdom for himself. Adam disobeys God in hopes that he won't die. And Jesus, on the other hand, accepts the mission of the cross and dies that he might live. Lastly, Adam loses paradise. And Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today I will be with you in where? Paradise. Satan is gone, but surely he will return when the devil re-enters Luke's narrative, Judas joins a high priest for a maneuver against the Messiah. We read in Luke 22, and Satan entered into Judas. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And he consented. He began seeking a good opportunity to hand him over. Don't ever read this story as if it's no big deal. If you already know how it's going to end, he's a real man and he's really hungry. He's a real man and he's looking at crucifixion. He could have fallen. Without a sinless Savior, we have no salvation. And now we can relax knowing that Jesus, unlike the Adam who failed, the first Adam or the first Israel that failed, that he was obedient to God's every command. Luke tells us about Jesus' faithfulness when he's led in the wilderness of testing. But how will you respond and how will I respond when we are tempted with power? 
Frederick J. Streets, once chaplain of Yale University, observed, we are also tempted to give our loyalty to people or situations that promise to give us power in return. Whatever God we worship is a God that will hold us accountable. Our integrity flows from the clarity we have about our commitments and how we understand and how we use and how we value power. As we see portrayed in the world powers this week, raw grabs for power display the very worst and fallen creation. Sin is evil. And Satan is diabolical and he tempts men to seize and snatch power from weaker opponents. Just because a surge of power and pleasure knows no limits, no satisfaction. All good people and all people who see through the puppets to the power of evil that's behind them stand strong. Let's be in the hour of temptation of good faith. Let us pray. Oh God, we come to you this morning. We're reminded that the evil one comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And just as he attacks us, he has failed in his attack on the Christ. We learn today because of his faithfulness, we have a sinful Savior who can bear our sins and die on the cross and rise again and not avoid death, but go through death. I know there's some this morning who've fallen to temptation. Satan has made them promises of power, promises of an easy road, promises of a better way other than God's way. Remind us that we have a sinless Savior who is obedient, obedient even to death on the cross. And only because of these 40 days and this hour of testing are we covered in the blood of the sinless Son of God. And in His name we pray and rejoice over His obedience. Amen.